Thanks for joining us for this recording from the Southdale Church of the Nazarene in Anderson, Indiana. I'm Pastor Brad Burrow, and I'm glad you are listening. Someone once said, we are what we repeatedly do. During the month of November, we're looking at some of the things we do as a church repeatedly in the prayerful hope that God will use these things to make us more like Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening. Now here's the message. On the verge of the beginning of the Advent season, and uh, starting the first Sunday of December, we're going to begin a series called A Thrill of Hope that leads us through that season of preparation, not just for the first coming and the, remembering the birth of Jesus Christ, but the hope that he is coming again, and that hope that that knowledge brings to us. And to help you get the most out of that Advent season, there are a couple of resources that we'd like to make available to you um, to help you through that season. Uh, it goes along with our sermon series. First of all, there is an Advent devotional called A Thrill of Hope. There is in here a daily devotional, a Bible reading, and a, a devotional based on that Bible reading for every day from the beginning of Advent at the start of December through Christmas Eve. We'll take you through the entire Advent series. A great thing for you to use as a family or in your personal devotions. Um, and then, in addition to that, if you have kids in your family, there is a kid's Thrill of Hope children's adventure as well. Uh, it's a story features uh, a girl named Hope and an adventure she's on. That story is broken up into 24 chapters, so there's a story that you can read with them each day through the Advent season. There are coloring pages in here for each day. There's an Advent calendar, a lot of different activities for kids. Uh, these two things, either one of these, what we're asking for is a donation of $6. Um, if you can't afford that, we would rather you have one of these than not have one. So feel free to take one, but $6 is what it costs us to provide them to you. And if you'd like to pick them up, you can do, start doing that this week, but I'll mention it again next week. They're out in the foyer on the table underneath the bulletin board. So you can pick those up for your family. There is one other thing that goes along with all of this. If you're doing this with kids, there are songs that go along with the adventure, a new song for each week during the season. And there is an app for your cell phone or your tablet. It's available on iPhone and for Android, either one. Uh, you should be able to find it in the Play Store or whatever they call it on, on Apple. I don't know. I'm an Android kind of person. But you should find it there. Just search for A Thrill of Hope. That is free, and you can download that for free. So bear those things in mind. Also, uh, December 8th, Saturday, December 8th, is the big concert, right? Um, we're looking forward to having tribute here for our 10th anniversary celebration with them. It'll be 10 years that they've been coming to Southdale. This time it won't be a Sunday morning, it'll be a Saturday night. Hoping for a big celebration, a big concert. Uh, we have tickets. We're not going to be taking up an off Saturday night. Rather, we're going to be selling tickets so that we can pay for them to come. If you need tickets, you can see me after service. If you'd like to help us sell tickets, you can see me after service. Tickets are $15 a piece if you buy them in person. You can order them online, but there's a slight, I think it's $1.60 something charge if you order them online, but you can get tickets that way too. But that is Saturday, December 8th at 7 o'clock p.m. Help us get the word out, help us sell some of those tickets, and we would appreciate it. If you have your Bibles with me today, uh, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew that you could use. 
you're free, you're welcome to use the YouVersion Bible app or any app on your tablet or phone. We like to recommend YouVersion because it works well. But one way or another, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you do so, would you join me in prayer as we move into this part of the service? Father, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. You have given us reason beyond reason to give you praise. But now, Father, I pray that as, you, as we open your word, that you would be faithful one more time to make your word become living and active in our hearing. Father, help us to be shaped by it. We'll give you all of the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. It is almost Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving will be here before you know it. But I'm not really talking, I'm not really talking about that Thanksgiving. I'm not talking about the family dinners that are going to be, be taking place around, uh, around uh, dinner tables and dining rooms over the next few days. That's, when I talk about Thanksgiving, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm looking forward to those things. I think I've told you our family tradition before, but uh, at the end of the week... Uh, my family will be heading north to be with the rest of our families. Friday, we're headed up to Decatur, Indiana, to the back 40. A few years back, maybe eight, ten years ago, my mom decided she was done cooking for Thanksgiving, which is ironic because my dad does all the cooking. But my mom decided that she was done. My mom decided she was done. I think it was more she was done cleaning up for Thanksgiving. And so on what you all call Black Friday, we gather for Thanksgiving at the buffet in Decatur for prime rib and crab legs. I know it's not your normal Thanksgiving feel, but I, I enjoy that. That's my kind of thing. And if you're worrying that I'm depriving my children of what it means to experience Thanksgiving, on Saturday we'll be going to Michelle's parents' house with her side of the family. My mother-in-law will again prepare the best turkey you have ever tasted in your life and we'll have all the fixings, including mashed potatoes and, and cranberry dressing, all that stuff. But that's on Saturday. Got to have the crab legs first. Right? But when I'm, talking about thanks, that's, when I'm talking about Thanksgiving, that's not really what I'm talking about. As much as I'm looking forward to those things, that's not really what I mean this morning. Instead, I'm talking about the Thanksgiving feast of the family of God. Not our family meals, but the, the feast of the family of God. That we share not once a year on the last Thursday in November. I'm talking about the Thanksgiving feast that we celebrate every single week when we gather together on the Lord's Day. Our Thanksgiving meal that we share goes by several different names. Uh, sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. Because this act of worship was instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed. As he gathered with his disciples for one last meal before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus began this meal that we participate in. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we finally finish this meal, when we consummate that feast in his kingdom. So we call this the Lord's Supper. More often, though, we call it communion. And the reason we call it communion is because this is a tangible token of the, of the koinonia, of the partnership, of the participation, of the fellowship, of the communion. That's why we call it communion. It is a tangible token of the communion that we experience with each other as the body of Christ and the family of God. 
and it's a tangible token of the 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 unity the communion the fellowship the participation we experience with jesus himself as the body of christ another name for this meal a bit older and one that quite frankly i prefer is to call it the eucharist and and there are some for whom that's a challenging word because it sounds catholic and when you hear eucharist you think of roman catholic practice and roman catholic theology I just want to tell you, I don't call this Eucharist because I share an understanding about what this means that lines up perfectly with what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Instead, the Church has been calling this Eucharist since long before there was a Roman Catholic Church even to talk about. Perhaps the earliest use of that word for communion appears in a letter written by a church leader by the name of Ignatius. Uh, Ignatius in, talks about it in his letter to the Philadelphians. And when I say that, I'm not talking about some city in Pennsylvania. We're talking about Philadelphia, one of the churches of Asia Minor, one of the seven churches to whom Jesus himself, through John, writes a letter in the book of Revelation. That Philadelphia is the one we're talking about. And to give you an idea about how old that letter was, Ignatius was born right about the same time that Jesus died. Give or take five or so years, Ignatius was born right about the same time as the death of Jesus. Ignatius was a disciple of John, the John who was a disciple of Jesus. Jesus' disciples, John, had a disciple named Ignatius. Eventually, Ignatius became the leader of the church in Antioch, which should ring a bell to you. The church in Antioch is the same church that ordained Paul and Barnabas to become missionaries. They're the same church that Paul and Barnabas would return to after the end of their missionary journeys. That Antioch is the church that, that Ignatius led. And during the reign of Emperor Trajan, uh, Trajan was emperor from 98 AD to 117. During the reign of Trajan, in the persecution of the church in those days, Ignatius was arrested and ordered to appear in Rome before the emperor. Eventually they would take him to Rome and they would try him in Rome and he would be thrown to the beasts in the Colosseum in Rome. But on his way there, from Antioch to Rome, they passed through Asia Minor, this same region where the seven churches were. And on that journey he writes letters to some of those congregations, including the church in Philadelphia. To put this again in terms of comparative time frames, uh, this letter to the Philadelphians, because it was written during the reign of Trajan, would have been written somewhere between 98 and 117 A.D. Um, this puts it within about 10 years of the writing of John's revelation by our best estimates. Ignatius' Ignatius's letter does not appear in the Bible because Ignatius himself was not an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus Christ like John was. But Ignatius lives, ministers, and writes within the New Testament period. He is a part of the New Testament church. And in that letter to the Philadelphians, Ignatius writes about this act of worship. In his letter, 
to the Philadelphians, he writes, Therefore give heed to keep one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup unto union with his blood. He writes that somewhere around the year 100 A.D. The Roman Catholic Church does not become the Roman Catholic Church until the great schism that divides the church east and west in 1054 A.D. They've been calling it Eucharist for almost a millennium by the time there is a Roman Catholic Church. And we don't call this, I don't call this Eucharist because I agree with the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, about what happens when we gather fully. Rather, I call it Eucharist because that's what the early church called it, Eucharist. That New Testament church was a Greek-speaking church, by and large. And in that language that they spoke, Euchariste was the word for thanksgiving. And so they called this act of worship Eucharist. They called it thanksgiving because this is the way we offer our thanksgiving to God because or for the good grace that God has freely given us in Jesus Christ. I like the word Eucharist because this is the church's weekly thanksgiving meal. And so every week, in keeping with the pattern of the earliest Christians, we gather to offer our thanks to God in the way Jesus himself taught us to. You have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This chapter is quite possibly the earliest. Ignatius is a fairly early reference to this act of worship. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is quite possibly the earliest written record of the church participating in these meals. The, the Gospels talk about the Last Supper, but the Gospels were written after, most likely, almost certainly, were written after 1 Corinthians. So this very well may be the first record of this in writing for the church. And if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 17. Look at verse 17 of this chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, 
Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. These instructions inform us, that tell us what we are supposed to do when we gather together for this act of worship. And... And a lot of what we do comes out of this very text and others like it in the New Testament. When I think about what we do in our gathered worship, what we repeatedly do in our gathered worship, I normally think in terms of three broad categories that make up this sacrament. Part of what we do I call words of instruction. And we start every week with words of instruction. Last week we talked a little bit about the difference between a mindless ritual and a meaningful one, right? And a big part of that difference between a mindless ritual and a meaningful one is the attention we give as we observe it. The mindfulness with which we celebrate that ritual. And because we don't want to mindlessly just go through the motions, every single week we start the celebration of the Lord's Supper with a word of instruction about what we are doing and why we're doing it. Every week I tell you that this is a sacrament. And that's a word that does not get used outside the church very often. But in using that word, what I'm telling you is that this is an act of worship instituted by Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry. It is something that Jesus himself commanded his followers to continue to do and is something that is associated with the promise of salvation. Not that by participating in this ritual we we are saved. In fact, Paul says in this very passage, if, if, if you come to this with the wrong heart and the wrong, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're doing. You're just eating some bread and drinking some juice. It's not that we're saved because we do this, but as we participate in this in the sacrament, we experience the presence of Jesus Christ and the grace that God makes available through Jesus begins to affect our salvation. It's a sacrament. It is also a means of grace. I I say that every week as well. This is a means of grace. And and that might be as unfamiliar to you a term as sacrament is. But that language reminds us that there's nothing magical about this. There's nothing magical about communion. This is not some ritual that by saying the magic words and going through the magic motions we can conjure up grace. Means of grace also reminds us that this is not something mechanical. This is not some sort of religious assembly line that by going through the same motions we can mass-produce salvation. There's nothing magical or mechanical about this. This is a means of grace. My old theology professor in college always used to remind us that a means 
is a place in the middle. A means is a place in the middle where Jesus himself promised, if you'll come to this place, I will meet you there. Meeting place. It is a, it is a means of grace. It is a meeting place where we can encounter the spirit of the crucified and risen Jesus. And by meeting him, we can be changed. It's a sacrament, I tell you. It's a means of grace, I tell you. And every single week, I remind you who is allowed, who is invited to participate in this with us. It's an invitation that is is broadly open. Unlike some traditions, you don't have to belong to our denomination. You don't. How many times have you heard me say that? You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in this. You don't have to await being confirmed in some sort of way. We sense that this is the Lord's table and that this feast is for his disciples. And so we invite anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ to come and participate in this act of worship. And it doesn't even matter. I tell you how many times have you heard me say this. It doesn't even matter if this is the first step you've ever taken in following Jesus Christ. If you are following him, you're invited to participate in this. It's a broadly open invitation, but it's not an indiscriminately open invitation. We do emphasize that this meal is for Jesus' disciples. No, you don't have to be perfect to participate in this. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of leftovers. Be a follower of Jesus. And you cannot follow Jesus and be going in the opposite direction. And so this meal is for those who have repented, who have stopped going in the opposite direction and have turned and begun to follow Christ. And so every single week, I challenge us, especially those of us that have been around the church long enough and have done this enough times that it might possibly become an empty ritual, every single week I challenge us to examine ourselves. right? Don't examine each other. That's not what Paul says. But each one should examine him or herself lest we eat or drink in an unworthy manner. It's the time to ask the question, am I following Christ? Or have I stopped following and started chasing after my own devices and desires to use an old, old phrase for it. It's a time for each one to examine one's own self to make sure we are still following Jesus Christ and if not, to take that opportunity to repent and change direction. Finally, in the words of instruction, I also lead us in confessing again the mystery of our faith. And by mystery, I'm not talking about some secret that we, that, that we don't reveal until you reach the highest levels of membership or something. No, the mystery of our faith is the thing that God is doing in the world that we make every effort to announce loud and clear for everyone to hear. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the mystery of the faith we proclaim. Then following those words of instruction, we come to the second part. I call them the words of institution. As we pray together, we remember the first Lord's Supper. That night when Jesus gathered with his disciples, 
before his arrest and crucifixion. We repeat the very words of Jesus himself, some of which are are recorded here in this passage from 1 Corinthians. As Jesus explained to those first disciples the meaning and significance of what they were about to do. We remember how on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the meal, he took the cup, and when he had blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this cup is my my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink this in remembrance of me. Now, the smart people that write the Greek books have a word for that. They call that part the anamnesis, but that's just a Greek way of saying remembering what anamnesis means remembrance anamnesis is an essential part of eucharist remembering is an essential part of giving thanks because if you don't remember how do you know what you're giving thanks for it is remembering that brings us to a place of thanksgiving it is remembering the way Jesus' body was broken for us the way that his blood was spilled for us the way that his life was willingly laid down for us that we might be raised to life with him. It's remembering that that brings us to that place of gratitude. So we have words of instruction. We have words of institution. Then we pray some words of invitation. There's a Greek word for that too. They call it the epiclesis. Epi means on or upon. Kalesis comes from kaleo, which means to call. Epiclesis means to call upon. So why don't we call it the calling upon? I don't know. Epiclesis sounds smarter. But we call we we call on God. That's what we do. We ask God to pour out His Spirit on this act of worship. Every week, we invite God to pour out His Spirit again. We use these words, we say, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts. Make them by the power of your Spirit to be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might become the body of Christ redeemed by His blood for the sake of the world. You want to talk about great schisms. For centuries, Christians have argued over just how Jesus becomes present with us as we gather for communion. Gallons of ink have been spilled over this argument, over this fight to explain how Jesus becomes present in this act of worship, whether somehow the bread and the wine becomes the body and the blood of Jesus, or maybe maybe it's not that they become, but maybe just deep down inside, some at the deepest part of their essence, they share some common characteristics with the body and blood of Jesus. Or maybe it's that Jesus makes us the body of Christ and we become the body and blood of Jesus. My good, sides have been taken, stakes have been nailed down, insults get hurled back and forth against anyone who doesn't. Christians have fought over how this happens for, for centuries. And every time I think about it, I think about my mom. When my brother and I would begin fighting, you know how brothers are, when my brother and I would begin fighting, my mother would always look at us and she'd say, you boys, 
you boys need some meaningful work to do. As I look at the squabbles over this, sometimes I, I look at the church and I say, church, you need some meaningful work to do. And as a church, we're not really interested in those debates. We're not interested in getting caught up in the perennial squabbles over just exactly how Jesus becomes present. God can make that happen however God wants to make that happen. We have important work to do. We have more important things to do than to fight over the mechanics. Instead, we simply ask God to do it. Pour out your spirit. However you see fit, pour out your spirit and make Jesus present among us. Why? So that we might be changed. Make Jesus present among us so that we might become the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. To me, that's the important phrase. And the second most important phrase is the next one. That we might become the body of Christ redeemed by his blood for the sake of the world. Do this, we pray. Make Jesus body and blood. Make Jesus present that we might become the body of Jesus Christ redeemed by his blood for the sake of the world. It all comes back to our purpose and our mission and if I were a good pastor, I probably would have told you that at the outset of the service. But we were having too much fun singing, I didn't even do it. But how many times have you heard me tell you, we believe we exist for what? The glory of God and the good of our world. Jesus, make these become for us the body and blood, that we might become the body of Christ for the good of the world. For the good of the world. And then towards that end, we also pray that God would make us one. We pray that God would make us one with each other. That God would make us one with Jesus Christ. And that God would make us one in the ministry of Christ until Jesus comes again in final victory. And then as one final act of unity, we pray together. Not just me praying, but we all pray Together, the prayer that unites us, the prayer that Jesus himself taught his disciples to pray, the, believe, the prayer that believers around the world and across the centuries have all prayed together in the many different languages in which they pray. We pray together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And having prayed, we eat, right? We do that every single week. Some wonder why we do it so often. In fact, every once in a while, some people ask me, Pastor, why do we do this all? And doesn't doing this every single week make it lose some of its meaning? Doesn't it make it a little bit less special? And I suppose, I suppose there are some things that are special because they are new. Novelty does make something. We talked about it last sermon of the last sermon series we talked about remember when things were new right that brand new toy that brand new job that first date or first kiss or the first bite of your McRib some things are special because they're new some things are meaningful because they are novel 
But while novelty might make something special, novel does not make it normative. We aren't formed, we talked about this, we aren't formed by the things that we occasionally do. Nobody goes to the gym once a quarter to lift weights and expects to come out cut, right? We aren't formed by what we occasionally do. We are what we repeatedly do. And when it comes to something as important as giving thanks to God for what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, I will trade what is special because it's novel for what is meaningful because it is normative any day of the week. In fact, I would trade novel for normative every single week. And we do every single Sunday. We keep coming back to the Lord's table because it is around the table that we become who He died to make us. This is our Thanksgiving meal. This has been a live recording from our Sunday morning service. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to join us, we gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at 530 West 53rd Street in Anderson, Indiana. You can find out more about us online at SouthdaleNAZ.com. Again, that's SouthdaleNAZ.com.